We're going verse by verse through the wonderful book of 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle's most intimate look to share his heart. We look at our message tonight, authentic ministry. Paul is sharing his heart, and he is the uh, original, if you will, in that authentic minister to give us an example. As he followed Jesus, he told Timothy, he told the uh, Corinthians, hey, follow me even as I follow Christ. And we're going to learn some valuable lessons as we look at the ministry that really comes out of this book because of the conflict. The Lord truly works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. As I look back in my life, all the things that the Lord has taught me actually through conflict and difficulties and hardship where you have to learn how to not only trust God in this circumstance and invite the Lord into the situation, but more than that, just discovering how to minister to God's people. And this is truly a pastoral letter. And there were those, as we see here in verse 1 and 2, that um, they were saying some things about Paul, that Paul was coming. He, he told them he was coming, he was going to address it. But as we look at these 18 verses in chapter 10, we're going to look at Paul's weapons, his authority, his fear of influence, and his boasting. And so that we can learn from that about our weaponry, our authority, our sphere of influence, and also the, the things that we should be boasting in, which is the Lord. He says in verses one and two, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul says, I plead with you in verse one. Then he says in verse two, I beg of you, basically for them to change their attitude because Paul the apostle says that when he the, the things that the people were saying, that when he's with us here ministering, he's very lowly, he's very humble, he's very gentle. But when he's absent and he writes us the, a letter, it's really bold and strong and in your face. And Paul understood that they were saying this about him. He also understood that no doubt that that's how he was ministering to them. You know, there's different ways to minister. When you're face-to-face -face with someone, you can be gentle, you can be humble, you can be lowly, you can be in this place of really just experiencing a more personal type of interaction. And as you're in that place of experiencing this personal interaction, you don't have to speak in the same way you would through a letter or through texting or through email. And Paul the Apostle, sometimes you can say things in a letter or email that you would um, you might have a hard time doing face-to-face. -face. And Paul here is saying, I know that when I'm with you, I am lowly, I am humble. And yet when I speak to you and write these letters, I'm bold and confrontational because of some of the sin that was going on in your life. But he said, I am coming. And when I come, I beg of you basically that you would change your perspective so that I don't have to come with the confidence that I plan on rebuking you face-to-face. -face. You think because I am gentle and lowly and, and, and very gracious in person, that ultimately, ultimately, 
you don't think I have a backbone to confront you face to face. And that's what he's going to do. I think that there's a misconception oftentimes in people's lives that are, are leaders, that are wanting to walk in love and humility and grace, that because you're gracious, because you're humble, because you're gentle as you deal with people face to face, people that have really strong personalities, people that are kind of bullies, even in the church experience, you can have spiritual bullies. Sometimes they think because your demeanor is very humble that you don't have a backbone. And over the years, I've had this experience with people that, you know, they, they, they come into the church, they start wanting to cause problems, and, and their first initial Im, uh, impression of me is very gentle. And I've had a number of conversations over these 26 years of being a pastor where I had to just get really firm with people and look at them and say, hey, man, just because I have a big smile and I'm wanting to be humble and I'm wanting to be gracious to you, do not misinterpret who I am that I don't have a backbone. I do have one. And if you push hard enough, you're going to find it. And if you want to find it, basically an authority that you're ministering in because there are people that are causing problems in the church. If it's some personal attack with me, I just, you know, I just take it, no big deal. But if you're going to cause problems in the church, that's a different story. I have an obligation to confront that. And, uh, you know, usually, just in my, my demeanor, I'm a very smiley guy. You know, got a smile on my face. And I, I move through life. I mean, this is just the way I came into this world. I'm, I'm pretty happy. But if you want to see the smile go away and you want to see very firm, steel-like backbone, just start messing with God's people in the church, and you're going to find that guy. Now, I'd rather say, hey, you know, why don't we just get along, rather than get out the door. You know, those are, those are two different radical things. But people, they looked at Paul, and they looked at his lowliness, and they looked at his humility, and they looked, and they, you know, according to church tradition, he was this little bitty guy, he was skinny, he was bow-legged, he had this big hooked nose, he you know, was semi-bald. I mean, he was not a very um, uh, impressive physical figure. And yet Paul the Apostle said, I am going to come with some confidence. And I, and I wish I didn't, I, I beg of you, change your perspective. Because when I come, and he's going to say in another place, that the, I, if you want a display of power, the kingdom of God is not about words. It's about a display, a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to see that in the authority that God has given me, I'm going to bring it. And so it's pretty heavy that he's laying out to them in verses 1 and 2. And he said one of the charges against him was that his presence was lowly. And when he was absent, he was bold because of these letters. But secondly, he uh, uh, tells them at the end of verse 2 that the people thought he walked according to the flesh. That he was just... He was going through life like other humans, manipulating things and coercing things. And Paul now wants to talk about his weapons. They're the weapons that he has or the weapons that we have. And it's not walking in the flesh. He says in verse 3 through 6, For though we walk in this flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
Paul said, though we walk in the flesh, meaning that he, he lives a life just like you and me. He's walking, uh, I mean, he has, uh, for us, each of us, we have a job that we have to do. Paul the Apostle made tents. We had bills to pay. He had rent. He had food bills. Uh, all of us are living this life as normal people, you and me. We're walking in the flesh in that way, that we live on a real world with dirt under our feet and bills to pay and things to do. But Paul said, what we don't do is war according to the flesh in the realm of the spirit. And he says that these two different worlds, you know, if you have coworkers, family, neighbors, uh, brothers, sisters, whoever, they're, they're a natural man or a natural woman. They're not a Christian filled with the spirit of God. They're just moving through life in the flesh, right? They don't have the spirit of God. They don't have the word of God instructing them. They don't have faith in God. They don't have any of the things that you and I have. They might be a decent fellow, they might pay their bills, they might pay their taxes, but they're moving through life in the flesh. And these detractors of Paul were saying, he's just like everybody else in the world, moving through life in the flesh. And Paul says, that's not so. And what you see on the outside is not really necessarily what's going on in the inside. And when he tells us in verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. This is a key passage for the Christian to understand in verses four, five, and six. The weapons, the warfare, the spiritual battle. When you became a Christian, you entered the battlefield of the Christian life. The Christian life is not a playground. <laughs> it is a battlefield. That means the world, the flesh, and the devil are all in opposition to you and I. Meaning the devil wants to destroy us. We're made in the image of God. The world listens to the lies of the devil. So our culture echoes his voice and his heart and his desires and the pressure culturally that we're in. And then our flesh on the inside is also attracted to, in a downward way towards sin. And so these three are this incredible battle. So you and I are in a battle, man. We're in the fight of our life against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the way that we fight that is not like the world fights it, but that our weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What is a stronghold? A stronghold is a strongly intent, entrenched idea in your mind and lifestyle that you can't shake. That's what a stronghold is. Do you have some stronghold in your life? And when you see strongholds in other people's lives, sometimes in a marriage, there's a stronghold that is going on in those people's lives. There's a husband with a fiery temper and it's a stronghold. He's given his life to Christ and yet he's got this explosive temper and he's got victory in all these other areas of his life. But here is this stronghold and in his mind he, he, he coddles it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't deal radically with it. And what are the weapons that are mighty in God to pull down those strongholds? Number one, it's faith in God. God can help me. Number two, it's the instruction of God, God's word. It's truth. God's word says this, therefore I believe that by faith. And, and number three, it's prayer. I'm inviting God to help me. Help me with a stronghold. Every single person has strongholds in their life that God has either delivered you from, is in the process of delivering you, or he will deliver you. It's a process of sanctification. God is gonna pull down strongholds through the weaponry that is mighty in God to pull down those strongholds. But it's not only pulling down the strongholds in your life that you face. What's your stronghold? For a young girl, it might be body image. You know, she's got this stronghold that she has to weigh this amount and the scale becomes this thing of bondage and the mirror becomes a thing of bondage. And now because of this food thing, she's, 
her body image. She's in this stronghold. Her, she thinks wrong. She's not thin enough or she's not pretty enough or she doesn't look like that model or she doesn't look like that actress. And she has this thought life that now keeps her in bondage. In this bondage, she begins to then act out because then she becomes a slave of that sin. And that slave, slavery of that sin, she begins to you know, become bulimic, pig and puke. So she eats and then she goes to the toilet and she throws up and, and she eats and she goes to the toilet and she throws up and she eats and she goes to the toilet and she throws up or she becomes anorexic. She actually has in this stronghold the strength over her will to say, I'm not eating. And every time she looks in the mirror, even though now she's just going down to a skeleton, she's still too fat. Where's the stronghold? Is it in the mirror? Is it in the scale? Is it in society? No, it's all in her mind, Right? You can go to the opposite end of the scale. There's bondage at the opposite end of the scale, right? Food is your God. What do you do when things get tough? <laughs> right? Food is my comfort. You get up at midnight and eat everything in the cupboards. I had a cousin, and when he celebrates, <laughs> there was a big football game, the hometown team won, and he said, I was so excited after that football game, I went home and ate everything in the house. And that's how he celebrated, and, and he, he weighs over 400 pounds. He's He's killing himself with a fork. It's bondage. It's bondage. But you see that stronghold in your mind, you won't acknowledge that. For some people, it's sexual things. For other people, it's pride. I mean, you can just list the bondage things. The problem is, though, is you need to bring your faith that is mighty in God to bear through prayer and through the truth of God's word, which the truth of God's word dispels the lies of the enemy. You begin to operate in truth rather than the deception in your own mind. And then, you see, once you begin to discover how to tear down the strongholds in life, in your own soul, and begin to get victory, then maybe it's a friend of yours needs help with the stronghold in their life. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your children or whoever it is. People, maybe you're married to an unsaved person and you realize the stronghold in their life is that the devil has blinded their minds for those who are perishing. They don't believe. And you realize that stronghold has to be torn down by faith, through prayer, and through the truth of God's word, and through love. This weaponry that you and I have is spiritual in nature. Faith in God. The truth of God's word. Prayer to God. And inviting God to intervene in your circumstances in life. And then walking in love and servanthood. This is basically a, a handful of things that are our weapons. Faith, truth, God's word, prayer, love, and servanthood. Just think about it. When you hate somebody's guts and you have an enemy, and now you're good people. People in Nebraska hate people. But, you know, if you've ever hated somebody, I've hated some folks, so I know all about this. I've got a stronghold in my mind. Every time I think of that person's name or their face, I'm just filled with hatred towards them or unforgiveness. And the world will say, it's fine to hate them. They did something wrong to you. It's fine to be unforgiving. They did something wrong to you. The Lord comes along and says, you know what? That, that unforgiveness, Rick, is eating you up. It's filling your heart with bitterness. And so I find, find that the Lord wants me to forgive others just as I've been forgiven. And all of a sudden, I ask God, please help me forgive this person. Please bless this person. Please begin to work your love and salvation in their life. Go after them. And I begin to pray for God's blessing in their life. And what has happened, I have torn down a stronghold of hatred, bitterness, and unforgiveness. And I destroyed that. 
I tore it down, the stronghold. The stronghold is a picture of an army coming to a fortress. And it's a fortress, and it's not going to be given up early. It's not going to be given up quickly. Some things in my life have been a battle my entire Christian life for 32 years. Strongholds. I tear them down, and then my flesh wants to build them back up. And I tear them down, and my flesh wants to build them back up. Here, when he tells us that they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, notice there are basically three dimensions of this experience and activity. I just mentioned to you the weaponry that we have, and if you want to get into a deeper study, obviously the whole armor of God is uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, gives us great insight. But in verse 5, there are two things. It says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every argument and every exalted thought that the world would give me, that the devil would give me, or my own flesh would lie to me, I'm gonna cast that down to the ground through the truth of God's word. God's word says this, society's saying this. Let's look at an example in our day and age of confused sexuality. Do you think we live in a culture that's confused sexually? Right? So we're not sure if that's a him or a her or an it or what's going on. Because people are confused sexually. They don't know, I mean, even though they're, they're do you know that, at, I mean, when, at the chromosome level, you are a man or you are a woman. At the very chromosome, I mean, basic biology, 23 chromosomes for your father, your mother, coming together, 46 chromosomes. At the very basic nature, you are a man or you are a woman. But you might have these thoughts in your flesh, your own temptation. You might be a man and you're attracted to men, or you're a woman and you're attracted to women. And you go, what is that? Oh, that's weird attraction. Because you know that the norm is heterosexual activity. So you're, you're confused by that. You have this desire. Realize you have a fallen sin from nature that has all kinds of wrong des desires. And then the devil tempts you with that. And then our culture embraces it and, and parades. Right? Bruce Jenner. I mean, he's the poster child. He's the man of the year or the person of the year. He is. He's the person of the year because here's a the Olympic star of the 76 Olympics, a guy of his stature now embracing. So what are the thoughts and the, the knowledge from the, the world, the flesh, and the devil that have exalted that above the truth of God's word, right? So you have to cast, tear all of that down. Just because I have inclination, do you guys know I have all kinds of terrible sinful inclinations? I'm your pastor. I'm sorry to admit that. I have all kinds of temptations. I have it. If you've experienced it, I've experienced it. If you're struggling with it, I've probably struggled with it, though, in different degrees and maybe something that is your cup of tea is not my cup of tea. Correct? Don't look at me like that. As soon as I get real and honest, everybody gets weird. Oh, no, our pastor is a sinner like us, saved by the grace of God. But do you realize I have to battle with my own thoughts the temptations that the devil's thoughts would give me in a culture that says all the thoughts that I'm feeling, all the thoughts that the devil is tempting with, the world says is okay. So why don't you go, go do it, Rick? Why don't you just go do it? Why don't you go live this way? It's culturally acceptable. The devil wants to, you to do it and your flesh wants to do it. Do you realize how important it is for you to understand the weaponry to tear down the strongholds in our own hearts and minds? So, he says, secondly, in verse 5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I'm casting down arguments that come from the devil, that come from the world, and that come from my own 
carnal, sinful, fleshly heart. I'm casting down those thoughts, having my mind renewed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But then what am I doing? How do I maintain that? I just tore all this stuff down. This is the way I used to live. I used to live violently. I used to live unforgivingly. I used to rip people off. I used to live in sexual immorality. I used to live in, you know, just foul, a foul life. And through God's grace, he's helped me tear all that stuff down. Well, how do I maintain it, though? Because I tore it all down. I have to take my thoughts captive daily and bring them into subjection, into submission to Jesus. Your mind is a busy, busy place, isn't it? All day long, your mind says, you got all kinds of thoughts buzzing around in your head. Your mind is an absolute freight train of thought all the time. Some good, some bad, some extremely ugly, right? You have those thoughts go through your mind. You ever scare yourself with weird thoughts? You ever just driving down the road and you have the most bizarre temptation on planet Earth? So you go, oh, I just scared myself. Isn't it terrible to scare yourself with terrible temptations and thoughts? Now, I know you guys are good people. You don't have those, but I do. Crazy thoughts that come through my mind. I'm going to go, whoa, for heaven's sakes, where'd that come from? That's awful. Jesus, help me. And so in my mind, I am regularly, <laughs> I'm like a police force in my mind, running down bad thoughts, Right? And as I begin to think, and my mind just begins to wander, because you see, for a lot of Christians, what they do is they want to stop at the external things. I don't do that, and I don't do that. I mean, you think about it, right? You don't do that, you don't do that, you don't do that. And Christians go through life. That's what the Pharisees said. And Jesus said, but I say, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. What was Jesus doing? He was taking away the external confidence they had, and he was taking it to an internal, deeper level of the issue of their soul. He said, the real battle's in your mind, isn't it? So daily, I have to take thoughts captive. Lord, that doesn't please you. Lord, help me out. And, and rather than, I don't go through life going, oh, don't think bad thoughts, because that doesn't work, <laughs> Right? I actually have to meditate on what's good. I have to think about good things. That's what I have to think. Sing, sing a worship song. Meditate on scripture. Get my mind engaged in good things. I tell young guys, they struggle with things. Young guys that are, you know, they're, they're 25 years old, they're driven sexually, and yet they're a Christian, and they're wanting to, you know, keep things under wraps. They're wanting to be self-controlled. They're wanting to please the Lord. And I tell them, man, you need to be busy from morning to night and exhaust yourself in good things. Keep your mind engaged. What is that old adage? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Isn't that the way it goes? Isn't that true, though? You get too much time on your hands, you in trouble. Why are you in trouble? Because you're not engaged in your mind going in a positive direction. So in order to maintain things, I tear things down, but then I, I, I have to pray and take these thoughts captive. I have all this interaction that's going on all the time in my brain. All the time. All the time. And it says in verse 6, this third thing, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What's that? That's maintenance. That's maintenance of the brain. That's maintenance in my life. That means that I deal with things of disobedience and I want to live in obedience. And my life is just, I live in bookends of from morning to night. 
and yesterday's gone, I can't do anything about it. Yes, tomorrow's not here. I don't need to worry about it. Today, I need to walk in the mighty power of God for pulling down strongholds, casting down the arguments of the world, the flesh, and the devil, taking my thoughts captive, and ultimately in maintenance, being constantly wanting to punish, if you will, the disobedience that wants to rise up in me. Paul said this, I buffet my body. (laughs) Now, that can be pronounced, I buffet my body. He's not buffeting his body like at the golden corral. No, he's buffeting. It means to beat it. It's this picture of this is not what's going on physically. Paul's not walking around, you know, punching himself in the face. What he's doing is that when those things rise up, what he's, he's putting them to death. He's punishing the disobedience that constantly wants to rise up in him. Do you have constant disobedience that wants to rise up inside of you? I do. I have to put it to death every day. Every day, taking my thoughts captive. This is the key to the Christian life. If you don't figure out verses three through six in the Christian life, you will be a defeated Christian with a saved soul and an unfruitful, ineffective life. If you don't conquer this. If you don't own this passage of scripture. And Paul the Apostle was being charged by these Corinthians as a guy that just walks in the flesh and he goes, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what goes on inside of here. Authentic Christianity starts on the inside and works its way out. Phony baloney religion starts as outward conformity and can never change the heart. Authentic ministry, authentic walk with God starts in your mind, your soul, inside of you, and it works its way out. It doesn't sit here in church on a Wednesday night and comfort itself. I don't do this outside. I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. But every single one of us inside of our own heart and mind, you know who you are. And I know who I am. And sometimes it's not very pretty, the things that come up in my mind. But I take them captive, throw them in jail, execute them, give them the lethal injection, the electric chair, put that to death. Kill that, because it's going to destroy you. Because this is the thing. If you do not learn how to take your thoughts captive and to punish the disobedience of your own soul in a daily way, that that stronghold is going to gain ground and it's going to dominate your life. It's going to dominate your life. It's going to take over your life. Some of us are here tonight, and you are in, you are in a stronghold. It has you by the throat. Sexual immorality, confused sexuality, lesbianism, homosexuality, drugs, lying, cheating, embezzling from the boss. You know, for a lot of people, just their mouth is their bondage. The stronghold, they cannot talk without tearing people down. They cannot talk without being critical of people. They cannot talk without being judgmental. And it's a sad thing. They don't even see it. They don't even see that their mouth is the most destructive instrument on their entire body. But it's a stronghold and everybody around them can see it. And nobody wants to be around them because of their sharp tongue. They can't see it. They don't realize that they need to, as the Bible says, once again, trust God by faith. Look at his word, the truth of it says, only speak those things that are necessary to build other people up. That would limit a lot of our conversation, right? Well, going on. In verse seven through 11, we see his authority. It says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ." 
There are those who are looking at Paul's outward appearance. They didn't think he was very spiritual. And yet Paul is saying, you guys say you're Christians. You say that you're walking with Christ. He said, I want you to know that we're Christ. We're, we're walking with the Lord. And one of the things about authentic Christianity and authentic ministry, and if you're really authentic in your walk with Jesus, you are a Christ-centered, Jesus-centered person. That means that the entire lens of your day, the entire future of your life, you look through the lens of Jesus being the center of your life. Jesus, he owns my life. Jesus, I mean, he's my savior. He's the one that changed my life. Now I want to walk with him. It's so radical when you go from darkness to light, from life, from, from death to life. When I came to Christ and I radically came out of the world, all of a sudden, didn't matter what, who I was hanging around, Pretty soon they knew I was walking with Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus becomes the central focus of your life, right? And, it, and most of us have become so accustomed to Jesus being the center and only wanting his desire and his will fulfilled in our life that we've almost, it's, it, it's like second nature. It's like breathing. I don't have to think about it because Jesus is the main thing. I, I want Jesus to rule in my life. And Paul the Apostle is saying that his life is in Christ. His life is a Christ-centered life. It, 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 we can't be authentic. You see, if you're in Christ here tonight, you are an authentic Christian. But if you're just a poser here tonight and Christ is not your Savior, then you're just playing a game. Right? You, you, I mean, you haven't really discovered how to walk with Jesus from an internal perspective. He says in verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by my letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are present, or excuse me, absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. First of all, he says, God's given me authority. And that authority, Paul the Apostle says, is for a purpose. And this is the right use of authority. Authority should always be used, as Paul says here, for edification, not for destruction. Think about it. A husband, God has given a husband a, the authority in a home to be the head of the wife. Does he use that authority to destroy his wife? or to build her up and edify her. The Lord has given mom and dad authority when the children come into the family. Sons and daughters. Mom and dad have authority over their sons and daughters. Do they use that authority to edify them and build them up or to destroy them? You ever talk to a kid that's just been seriously abused? I mean, his, his dad verbally abuses him. Maybe physically abuses him. Mom verbally abuses him. It's, it's, so, it's so awful to see a little kid that should be in the, I mean this, in the joy of life, 10 years old. They should only be worried about Cheerios and cartoons. You know what I mean? They should just be in this place of just life is so good. But because somebody is abusing authority, they're destroying them. They're destroying a little boy's life, a little girl's life. The boss at work He's given an authority, but it is to edify and to build up so that the workplace can be a successful place, can be a blessing. But a boss who abuses his authority, what a drag. Now, it's true in ministry, too. 
a pastor, an apostle like Paul, he said, my authority that I've been given is to edify you and to build you up, not to destroy you. It's always our desire to see people built up and encouraged and strengthened. And yes, even when you have to have the hard conversation of the truth and love and confront somebody or rebuke somebody, the ultimate end and goal is always repentance, the confrontation, the repentance, and then the restoration that leads to edification. But Paul said, you know what? Some people say I terrify them with my letters. And they're saying, but when he comes, he'll be Mr. Mr. Lowly and Meek, he said, now I just want you to know, when I come this time, you want proof of who I am, that I have a backbone? Realize that as strongly as I talk to you in the letters, this time when I come, I am gonna come with that kind of strength. I'm gonna come with that kind of boldness. And if that's what you want, he begged him, he pleaded with him earlier that he wouldn't come that way. Isn't that the thing about authority? You ever have this conversation with your kids? I used to have it all the time. Hey guys, we don't wanna have a great day. We're going to go out to Blacktail, and we're going to go water skiing, or we're going to go swimming. We're going to go up the river and have a picnic. And, you know, one day, I mean, one way for this, this day to be ruined is for you guys not to listen to us or that you fight with one another. But if you listen to mom and dad and you get along with each other, you know what? We're going to have the best day ever, ever. And you barely got out of the driveway, right? <laughs> mom, dad, he touched me. Right, you start the business. And the kids, when they're disobedient, you know, you had talked to them once, hey, put that down. He asked you to put that down. Oh, no, now you've went and done it. You didn't put it down, now I'm gonna have to sprinkle your rear end. And now you've just ruined all the peace in the house. What a drag, you just ruined all the family peace. Why'd you do that? Well, I don't know. And, and so the whole goal in is you want to be gentle. You know what? I, I just wanted you, hey, just go take your shoes and your coat, take your shoes to the, you know, the porch, hang up your coat. It was a simple instruction. You understand it. There's not a problem with understanding, right? No, but you just got to diddle-daddle around. And now you've brought all this drama, and in a second you're going to be crying because I had to spank your behind. And if you would have just listened we could have had a group hug. But no, you just had to have it the hard way. You know, some people in life, they just have to have it the hard way. Family members, kids, coworkers, people in church, some people just, they don't, they don't get it any way but the hard way. And so you always got to give it to them the hard way. And Paul the Apostle said, you know, I just wanted to talk to you. I just wanted to give you a little instruction. But if you want it the hard way, okay, we can bring that too. Now, he talks about his sphere of influence in verse 12 through verse 16. And he tells us this. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. You get something in that? Themselves. Right? How many times does he say it? He says it once. He says it twice. He says it three. He says it four times. And he says, you know, we're not comparing ourselves next to some of these false teachers or people that are raised up in the church, that look what they do. He said, they commend themselves. Number one, if I have to go around telling everybody how wonderful I am, that's what they were doing, then there's something wrong with that. You know, you don't have to commend yourselves. 
God is the one that commends, but they were commending themselves. They were measuring themselves by themselves, meaning, I think I'm pretty good. And then they would measure, I'm a lot better than Joe over here or George over here. And let me tell you, if you go through life comparing yourself that you're a pretty good guy by pointing out a couple of worse guys than you, that is a sorry, sorry measuring stick. Because if you can't find somebody worse than you, you're in bad trouble. You know, I don't have to look very far to say, hey, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that girl. I go through life committed. You know, pretty soon I could just work myself into a real prideful, arrogant cloud. Look how good I am. Wow, so much better than him. You know, he talks mean to his wife. I don't do that. He slaps his kid. I don't do that. And you know, if you go through life comparing yourself and measuring yourself by others, let me share with you what the measuring stick is. It's the perfection of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect measuring stick. And when I measure myself against Jesus' perfection, you know what happens? I come up short. I come up short. I don't care how good you think you are. There are some people that really have a misplaced exaggeration of their own, go- their own goodness. They, because they, they just go through life comparing themselves with everybody. And comparison is such a drag because if I see people that are doing better than me, I'm depressed. And if I see people that are doing worse than me, I'm filled with pride. You see, there's no happy medium there. I'm either depressed or I'm prideful. But when I measure myself next to Jesus, you know what happens? I am humbled. And I realize that by the grace of God, I have a relationship with him. And I'm not, better, I'm not looking at anybody else. I'm only looking at Jesus. And because of that, Paul the Apostle says, these guys are making a big fat mistake because their world is very horizontal and they've forgotten the vertical. They haven't looked up to see Jesus because as soon as you get a glimpse of Jesus, you know what, you're undone. All the way through the scriptures, everybody that had an incredible encounter with God, they fell on their face. They're just like Peter, when Jesus told them to cast their net on the right side of the boat and they caught this fish that was breaking their nets, Peter stops in the middle of this crisis, their boats are sinking, and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus and he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You see, right in that moment, Peter had a glimpse of the goodness of Jesus and he realized there's no way that I can go on in a relationship with him because he is so good and I am so sinful. You see, that's what true humility does. And these people that were throwing rocks at Paul the Apostle were boasting and puffing themselves up by measuring themselves with one another. In verse 13 it says, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as we, your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. He says, you know what? There's a, a lot going on out in this world that I have no authority over. It's not my sphere of influence. And, and it's not like I'm coming to a church and writing a letter to a church that the Apostle Peter started or the Apostle John started or any of those things. He said, no, you guys are within the sphere of our ministry. This is the thing about authentic ministry is it understands the sphere of its authority. And it understands what is within that sphere and it also understands what's outside the boundaries of that. When you think about authority, there are things that at your work, 
Your job responsibilities, you've been given a certain amount of influence in that job responsibility. If you're an overseer at work, maybe you oversee 10 people, and now your sphere of influence is over those 10 people. But your sphere of influence does not involve your boss or the guy that signs your paycheck, correct? Because that's not your authority. He's given you a sphere of authority. And God, likewise, gave Paul the Apostle a sphere of authority. And, and he was telling the Corinthians, because the Corinthians were kind of shaking it off, like, why do we got to listen to Paul? Who's this guy anyway? Who's he think he is writing us strong letters? Who's he to tell us we're living in sin? Who's he to say we shouldn't be drunk at communion? Who's he to tell us we shouldn't be shocked up with our girlfriend? Who, who does this guy think he is? Well, Paul said, well, let me tell you who I am. God gave me authority, and I came there and started a church. And if you believe in Jesus, it's a result of the ministry that I did. And as a result of that ministry and that sphere of influence, I have the authority from God to speak into the sphere that he's given me because God gave me this authority. In every ministry, in every person's life, very few people have no influence in life. Everybody has some influence in life. And the sphere of impact, wherever you go in town, family members, relationships, work, church, wherever you go, your hobbies, who you hang out with, all those people are within the sphere of what you can influence for good. You can be a blessing. And in certain situations, you'll have authority, so your sphere is different in that you're exercising authority. But I have no authority outside of the sphere that God has given me. Just as in, in my married life, I function in that sphere of influence with my wife. But I'm not trying to function in any kind of sphere with your wife. That's outside of my authority, Right? Or your children. I, I, you know, there's many times I wanted to pick up some of your kids and spank their heinies. But I didn't. Why? Because it's not in my sphere of authority. I had to just take care of my own children. That's none of my business. Your children. And Paul the Apostle is saying, you know, not only is this our sphere of influence, and this is where I see a lot of people get themselves into trouble. They get themselves into trouble at work because they try to overstep their bounds of the sphere of influence. They're coloring outside the lines. God hasn't asked them to do that. But now they're there, and they're getting their hands slapped, and then they feel bad. Well, that's, that's none of your business. Why are you in that? Other people, they always are getting other people's business into the neighbors, into the family. You know anybody that's just a busybody, and they're always getting people's business? And then they get their nose bit off, and then they're all put out. You're like, well, that was none of your business. You shouldn't have been involved with that in the first place. Mind your own business. Get out of that. Why are you trying to exercise authority over things that do not pertain to you? Paul the Apostle said this, the church in Corinth, does pertain to him. And so he says the desire was that he wasn't building on another man's foundation or another man's labor. This was his labor that he was building on top of. But ultimately, he says this, but if you guys would grow and you would increase and you would increase ministry, then our sphere would actually be increased through your growth. You see, authentic ministry always wants to see people reached. Paul the Apostle was always reaching out, always reaching out, always reaching out, sharing the gospel with the lost and encouraging Christians. And so he gives that same kind of encouragement to the Corinthians that said, you know, we're dealing with all these internal problems, but if we were operating like we should be and then increasing the ministry, then the sphere of influence would grow and more people would be reached. That happens in churches. If you've ever been involved in a church, they begin to be inward fighting. They, evangelism stops. 
Evangelism stops. They're not trying to reach the world because they're, they're bickering with one another. They're infighting. And, Paul, and that's really what these letters are about. That's what was going on. And Paul said, but if we just grow and expand that influence, we would constantly be reaching out. And that's what the heart of all authentic Christianity wants to do, is reach the lost, build up the saved, and see that take place. It says lastly, in verse 17 and 18, this is his boasting. It says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. You know, if you want to boast about something, these Corinthians that were fight, bickering with Paul, they were glorying about themselves. They were telling everybody how wonderful they were. And as they were telling everybody how wonderful they were, and they were boasting in, in their accomplishments, and they were boasting why they don't need Paul's authority or instruction in their life. And Paul says this, he says, you know what, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Do you know that you and I really have nothing to glory in or boast about except the Lord? And it says that ultimately the Lord's going to be the one that commends you. Years ago, I was watching this uh, Sir David Frost, uh, a British BBC guy, interviewing Billy Graham. And he asked Billy Graham, he said, you know, a lot of people have uh, said this about you. And he was quoting these people. And, and in this interview, I was watching and fascinated by Billy Graham and his walk with God and and he, he said, uh, Sir David, I, I, uh, I don't care that anybody says anything nice about me. He said, one day I want to hear one person say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And he said, in characteristic humility of Billy Graham, he said, I do not know that I'll hear those words, but that's what I live for. And I'm thinking to myself, come on, Billy. Billy Graham has preached in only, I mean, literally in stadiums and crowds, face-to-face, -face, more people than anybody in world history. He has preached face-to-face -to, -face to 50 million people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fifth, that doesn't count radio or TV. Is that mind-blowing or what? And he says he doesn't know if he's going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I remember sitting there watching that, come on, Billy, for heaven's sakes. But what was he saying? He was saying exactly what Paul the Apostle is saying right here in verse 18. He who commends himself, it's not he who commends himself that is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Where do you want your commendation to come from? Who do you want? Are, are, you, are you living your Christian life? Is it authentic because you want people to pat you on the back? Are you ultimately an authentic Christian wants to live this life in his heart, mind, soul, body, soul, and spirit in a daily way for the glory of an audience of one? And when people want to talk to you about the cool things God's doing in your life or the cool things he's doing through your life or the cool things he's doing around your life, an authentic Christian, when people say these things, you say, man, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Praise God. Jesus is Lord. Now, this is a little difficult sometimes in, in ministry because somebody will be blessed by a message that I share. And afterwards, they'll want to, and maybe they're, they're unfamiliar with certain, you know, kind of concepts theologically or doctrinally. And they'll just say, you're wonderful, Rick. And they'll go on and on. And I want to tell them, you know, I'm really not that wonderful. Ask my wife. And, uh, uh, but they're trying to encourage me that God spoke to them through the word. 
And the Bible says to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. So over the years, I used to, in the early days, I would just so shut them down. I would just say, hey, praise God. And it's not me. And I would be kind of strong because of this concept that I'm sharing with you right now. But I realized when I was doing that, I was actually kind of rebuffing them. And that wasn't, that wasn't good because the Bible says to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. And so I've had to really refine that process. So this is the way I go at it. So when God uses you and God blesses somebody through your life, you can use this because it took me some years to figure it out. They want to encourage you about the message or about your service or your gift, whatever it was. And you go, praise the Lord. I'm so glad God ministered to you. But I want to thank you for the encouragement that you gave me. And I usually say it in reverse. Thank you for that encouragement. I appreciate that because they're seeking to encourage me. And I'm so glad that the Lord ministered to you because the Lord and his word and his spirit is the only ministry that I have going on. If I stood up here and told you my uh, brilliant thoughts, which I have none, apart from God's word and God's spirit, I mean, we might as well go to the Elks Lodge or something. No offense to the Elks guys. You know what I mean? I have nothing to say. I have absolutely nothing to say. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'd like to leave with this, one of my favorite passages from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That's something to glory about. I know Jesus. You know Jesus? We have something to glory in. I love to give the Lord the glory for my life and for everything that he's done. What he's, the work he's done in my marriage, my family, every dimension, every single pervasive area of my life, God has blessed me and it, to him be the glory, to him be the praise. And I'm so thankful to be his servant and what a joy it is. And you just want a glory in how awesome he is. And you want to let people know to taste and see that the Lord is good. Man, you get to just taste, taste and see that God is good. And when you love him and serve him like that, you'll want to boast in the Lord too. You'll want to glory in the Lord. And you get to be an instrument. You get to be a vessel. That's all cool. That's good. That's enjoyable. But ultimately, he gets the glory for what we do. And that's what authentic Christianity looks like. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Lord, as we turn our hearts towards communion, as we set our hearts towards worship, as we set our hearts towards really um, taking this message and bringing it right to your feet, Lord Jesus, to remember you, your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. And Lord, we pray that you would meet us in a very special way right now. And you said as often as we do this to it in remembrance of you. And so you are the resurrected Lord. You are alive and well. You, by your spirit, are here to minister to the hearts of your people. And so, Lord, as we um, worship you, as we hand out the communion elements, as we partake together, as we share of your body and your blood and the symbolism that's in front of us, Lord, we just invite your refreshment. We invite the ministry of your spirit and the work of your grace in each one of our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.